Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 24, Spartans and Elephants. Last time, we covered how a quarter of a million men and nearly 700 ships clashed in the Battle of Cape Ignomus, the largest naval battle in history. Having reached deadlock in Sicily, the ever-decisive Romans determined that they would need to strike at the heart of Carthage in North Africa if they were to bring the war to a successful conclusion. Their massive invasion fleet collided with an equally impressive Carthaginian defense fleet at Cape Ignomus in southern Sicily. As we saw last time, the resulting struggle was fierce and brutal. The Romans eager to land in North Africa to bring the war to Carthage's homeland, while the Carthaginians were equally desperate to keep the Italian invaders at bay. In the end, despite the best laid plans of the Carthaginian admiral Hamilcar, the Romans won a decisive victory thanks in large part to their Corvus boarding bridge. In 256 BC, soon after the Battle of Ignomus, Roman sandals splashed ashore on the Cap Bon Peninsula, the consuls confident that total victory would soon be theirs. As we remember from previous episodes, Cap Bon was one of the most beautiful and fertile areas under Carthaginian control. The land was full of rich vineyards, massive herds of livestock, magnificent palaces, and streams of flowing watercourses, a veritable garden cultivated by the genius of Carthaginian agriculture. Upon landing, the Romans hauled their boats ashore and fortified their encampment but they soon realized that these precautions were unnecessary. The Cap Bon Peninsula had recovered greatly since the days of Agathocles' invasion over 50 years before, but the Carthaginians seemed to have learned little from that former scare. Most of the cities and mansions remained undefended. There was no standing army to speak of, and the local magistrates had no real experience or training of how to defend the countryside. The Romans easily captured the town of Aspis, a mere 40 miles from Carthage, and then proceeded to dispatch raiding parties to scour the countryside for loot and booty. These raiders destroyed many of the luxurious country estates and captured a vast number of cattle and livestock, as well as 20,000 prisoners. Once they had secured their base at Aspis, the consuls sent word of their success back to the Senate and requested orders on how to proceed. Meanwhile, when news of the disaster at Agnomus reached the capital, the Carthaginians were terrified that the Romans would be so carried away by their victory that they would sail straight for Carthage to attack. To combat this, they marshaled the city militias and deployed their remaining soldiers and fleet to defend the approaches to the city. When news reached them that the Romans had landed in Cap Bon instead, they shifted their focus to defending their valuable farmland surrounding Carthage. At this point, with victory seemingly right within their grasp, the Roman Senate took the extraordinary step of ordering the majority of the army and fleet to return to Rome with the captured war spoil. Why they did so remains a mystery, and several theories have been put forward. 
One is that the Roman logistics system was overstrained by trying to supply so large a number of men so far from their base of operations. Another is that the Roman consul Regulus was the primary proponent of the invasion of Africa, and the other members of the Senate, either out of jealousy of his success or fearful of gambling the entire war on this planned master stroke, ordered the withdrawal from Africa. Another could just be that Rome felt she had done enough to scare the Carthaginians into coming to the negotiating table. Whatever the reasons, the other Roman consul Manlius embarked with most of the army and all of the prisoners in tow, leaving behind 15,000 men, 500 cavalry, and 40 ships with Regulus on Cap Bon. For the Carthaginians, the unexpected withdrawal of so many Roman troops was a huge blessing. Since she was so reliant on mercenaries to do her fighting, Carthage could only raise armies as fast as she could hire and transport the foreign soldiers from inland or overseas. It often took several weeks or even months for her to marshal an army, and even though in times of emergency she could enroll her citizens into the ranks, these would need time to brush up on their training and scratch off the proverbial rust. Now, Carthage had gained a little more time to prepare her defenses. The Carthaginians elected Hasdrubal, son of Hanno, and Bostar as joint generals for the campaign, and they recalled Hamilcar, the same admiral from Agnomus, from Sicily, who soon arrived with 5,000 infantry and 500 cavalry. After discussing the situation over with his fellow commanders, Hamilcar decided that he and Hasdrubal would march with their force of mercenaries, citizen militia, cavalry, and elephants to defend the cities and countries surrounding Carthage from Regulus's advance. Undaunted by the withdrawal of the majority of his force, Regulus marched further along the coast and laid siege to the city of Attis. The Carthaginians quickly moved to support the city, encamping along a steep ridge surrounding Attis. Unfortunately, even though their position offered them an excellent view of the Romans in the plain, it negated their advantage in cavalry and elephants, since these could not operate easily in the rough terrain. Traditionally, the Romans as a civilization had always been infantry-focused, their mainline troops being the legionaries with their pila, long throwing spears, and a short sword. Thus, the Romans frequently had to rely on their allies to supply the cavalry wings of their armies, and they were often outnumbered and outperformed in cavalry engagements. We will cover the Roman army of the Punic Wars in detail in a future episode. For now, Regulus had failed to negotiate an alliance with the local Libyan and Numidian tribesmen of the interior, meaning that he could not supplement his small force of 500 horsemen with any quality native cavalry troops. But now, thanks to the Carthaginians' mistake, he had a chance to engage them when their cavalry advantage was rendered moot. Seizing his chance, Regulus ordered his men to advance to the base of the Carthaginians' hill under cover of darkness. At dawn, the trumpets for the attack sounded, and the Romans charged up the slope on two sides to fight the Carthaginians within their camp. Fierce fighting ensued, 
and at one point the Roman vanguard was forced back by the valiant defense of the Carthaginian mercenaries. But their victory was only temporary, for in their pursuit of the retreating vanguard, the mercenaries ran too far ahead of their comrades and became surrounded by the other Roman division on the opposite side of the hill. A general rout ensued, with only the elephants and the cavalry, both of which had played no part in the fighting, able to make an escape in good order. The Romans proceeded to plunder the Carthaginian camp and sack all the towns in the surrounding district before relocating their new headquarters to the city of Tunis. If things looked bad for Carthage before, now they were desperate. Morale was in the gutter, the armed forces were in disarray, and every day hordes of frightened farmers and villagers appeared at the gates of the capital, begging for protection against the marauding Romans. To make matters worse, the Numidian tribes of the interior had risen in revolt and were raiding and burning the Carthaginian farmlands even more than the Romans. The huge population in the capital, swelled by the host of refugees, soon stared starvation in the face. At this point, the Roman consul Regulus felt himself on the cusp of the greatest victory that any Roman had ever achieved up until this point. Carthage, the queen of the Mediterranean, was nearly prostrate at his feet. Only a little more time was required, but unfortunately for Regulus, his term as consul was rapidly running out. Fearing that if he put the capital under siege, his successor would reap the reward of all his hard work. Regulus invited the Carthaginians to deal, according to Polybius, although other authors assert that Carthage made the first overtures. Regardless, the terms proposed by Regulus were so outrageous that the Carthaginians felt that they would be little worse off if conquered. Regulus's terms were that Carthage evacuate not only Sicily, but also Corsica and Sardinia, release all Roman prisoners without ransom while paying a hefty ransom for all Carthaginian prisoners in Roman hands and pay for Rome's war expenses along with an annual tribute. Besides this, Carthage could not make war or peace without Roman consent, and she would have to supply Rome with 50 warships while only retaining one for her own defense. In effect, this treaty would reduce the proud Carthaginian empire to a mere vassal state of Rome. The Carthaginian diplomats left the negotiating table offended by the terms and disgusted by Regulus's harshness. According to Polybius, when the Roman conditions were read aloud to the Carthaginian Senate, the senators showed considerable bravery and nobility despite the almost certain prospect of defeat. They decided that, come what may, they would be prepared to do anything rather than submit to a solution that demeaned them and tainted their past achievements. For a civilization made infamous for its compromising and luxurious nature, this brief insight presents the Carthaginian leaders in a refreshingly heroic light. As they prepared grimly to fight to the last, the Carthaginians received a new batch of mercenary recruits from the Greek Peloponnese. Among them was a Spartan adventurer named Xanthippus, 
an experienced commander who had been trained in the traditional Spartan manner, and who now led a sizable contingent of Greek soldiers. When he heard of the defeat at Attis, Xanthippus quickly pointed out to his friends that the Carthaginian generals had lost the battle against the Romans due to their own incompetence rather than anything else, stating that they should have kept to the plains in order to make better use of their cavalry and elephants. Word travels fast, and soon Xanthippus's criticism reached the ears of the Carthaginian high command, who decided to send for this Spartan soldier to see what he had to say for himself. When he arrived in their presence, Xanthippus told the generals plainly that their inexperience in warfare and poor handling of the troops was the real reason for their defeat, repeating that if they kept to flat ground and deployed their cavalry wings properly, all would be well. In a surprising plot twist, instead of dismissing this presumptuous Greek mercenary or doing worse to him, the three Carthaginian generals thanked him for his advice and even appointed Xanthippus as the senior training officer over the entire army. Perhaps Xanthippus's Spartan credentials gave his opinion a weight that could not be ignored. Perhaps the generals were so desperate to avoid the wrath of the Council of 104 and the crucifixion that would inevitably follow that they grasped at any opportunity to defeat the Romans. Who can say? Once he was in charge, Xanthippus wasted no time in whipping the Carthaginians into shape. The news of Xanthippus's ideas had already spread throughout the army and raised the men's spirits, and he intended to capitalize on this newfound optimism. Forming the Carthaginian citizens outside the city walls, he drilled them in units for long hours in the Spartan manner of fighting in a highly disciplined phalanx. Robed in his red Spartan cloak, Xanthippus gave his orders with such confidence and authority that the Carthaginians, astonished at the difference between their new Spartan leader and their old generals, broke into cheers and believed that no disaster would befall them under this Spartan's command. Satisfied with the troops' progress, Xanthippus and the Carthaginian generals agreed to lead this reinvigorated army to confront the Romans once again for the control of the countryside. A force of 12,000 infantry, mostly Carthaginian citizens with some mercenary soldiers, 4,000 cavalry, and the staggering figure of nearly 100 elephants marched out from Carthage in the spring of 256 BC. For the Romans, the sight of this disciplined Carthaginian army keeping to the plains made them uneasy. Nonetheless, Regulus's time of command was quickly coming to an end, and he determined to hazard everything on a decisive battle. After making camp near the Carthaginians, the Romans drew up and offered battle. In the Carthaginian camp, the senior officers met together to discuss what to do about the Roman challenge. The common soldiers, however, were so eager to come to grips with the Romans and try out their new formation that they formed up into their units and called out for Xanthippus to lead them in person immediately against the Romans. Although it may seem surprising to us to hear of foot soldiers banding together and lecturing their generals, in the ancient world it was relatively common for the soldiers to have some manner of say in how they would be deployed 
or who would lead them, turning the army into something like a mobile government. The people of the camp, the term for the Carthaginian military, were no exception to this general rule, and when they saw the troops' enthusiasm and determination, the generals bowed to their wishes and appointed Xanthippus, a foreign Spartan adventurer, as supreme commander for the coming battle. Now that his hands were free, Xanthippus deployed the elephants in a long single line in front of the entire Carthaginian army, thus avoiding Hanno's mistake at the Battle of Acragas that we discussed in episode 21. Xanthippus placed his newly trained Carthaginian citizen phalanx at a good distance behind these elephants, while on his right wing he drew up the mercenary troops. By leaving a distance between the elephants and the infantry, Xanthippus ensured that, even if the elephants started panicking and ran amok, his own infantry would have enough time to avoid being trampled. The Carthaginian cavalry were to secure either flank in conjunction with some light troops. If you want to see a diagram of how the battle unfolded, I recommend that you take a look at this episode's page on the Layman's Historian website. As always, you can find a link in the description. When the Romans saw the host of elephants approaching, they became afraid and dreaded having to encounter these huge war beasts. As we discussed in episode 21, elephants in ancient warfare were trained to trample and crush with their feet, gore and impale with their tusks, and sling men or dash them to the ground with their powerful trunk. Their size and loud trumpeting was often enough to terrify an enemy into submission and horses notoriously would not stand the sight or smell of elephants. However, these beasts were not cheap. Since it was impractical and inefficient to raise elephants in captivity, most were captured as adults in the wild and tamed before they could be trained for war. Once captured, the elephant's training would take nearly 20 years before it could be deployed with confidence on the battlefield. And even then, there was always the risk that it could lose its head and bring disaster on its own side. A driver known as a mahout was responsible for training the elephant to be inured to pain and loud noises, and for controlling it in battle. These men were often Indians from India, but not always since all mahouts in ancient armies were collectively referred to as Indians. Typically armored to defend against the obvious attack against him as the elephant's driver, a mahout would usually ride on the neck of the elephant behind its ears and carry a spear, bow, or javelins. Later, mahouts would also carry a hammer and spike to perform the sad duty of putting down the elephant if it began to rampage through its own army. Since they spent so much time together, a close bond developed between the driver and his beasts, and Mahouts would routinely give wine to their elephants before battle, thinking that the alcohol made them more aggressive and ferocious. There are even reports of elephants which refused to eat or drink after accidentally trampling their Mahout to death in a frenzy. Given the sheer expense of feeding, housing, and training such beasts, and the difficulty of maintaining even a handful of elephants effectively. The fact that Carthage could marshal nearly a hundred war elephants at the Battle of Tunis stands as a stark reminder 
of the wealth and power she could still summon even in her darkest hours. When Regulus saw the line of elephants placed in front of the Carthaginian army, he arranged his own men in short, deep columns with the grim thought that if the first ranks were forced back by the charging elephants, the rear ranks could prop them up and prevent the whole unit from retreating. Besides this, the depth of the formation also allowed the Romans to bring more missiles to bear on the advancing elephants, and with the lightly armed velites, young men armed with javelins and torches, Regulus probably hoped that he could frighten the elephants into retreat. However, this formation also prevented the Roman maniples from being able to maneuver to aid their heavily outnumbered cavalry on either flank. When both sides were drawn up to attack, Xanthippus ordered his elephants to charge. The Romans, beating their shields and spears together loudly, advanced with their booming war cries. As the elephants smashed into the Roman lines, the desperate soldiers vainly tried to maintain their formation against the roaring war beasts. On the other side, the Carthaginian right flank, composed of mercenary troops, was unprotected by the elephant line, and 2,000 Roman soldiers drove them from the field before turning to plunder the Carthaginian camp. Meanwhile, the superior Carthaginian cavalry of 4,000 men easily routed the measly 500 Roman horsemen. Having accomplished their purpose, the Carthaginian horsemen wheeled and crashed into the flank of the Roman legionaries. Those who survived the onslaught of the elephants were now engaged with the Carthaginian citizen phalanx, which advanced in good order against the tired and battered Romans. The result was no longer in any doubt. Those Romans who escaped trampling by the elephants were either struck by javelins from the cavalry or cut down by the advancing phalanx. Only a few of the Romans turned to flight and 500 men under Regulus himself even managed to cut their way through the enemy and escape to open ground. However, these were soon surrounded and taken, leaving only the 2,000 Romans who had beaten the Carthaginian mercenaries standing free on the field. These men, by their courage and discipline, later managed to regain the coast and embark on rescuing transport ships sent from home. In all, 12,000 Romans fell in the Battle of Tunis, while only 800 Carthaginian soldiers lost their lives. The capture of a Roman consul was another great achievement, which surely rankled the Romans due to the dishonor. In Carthage, the populace celebrated with unbridled joy at the sudden transformation from imminent defeat into total victory sacrificing countless thank offerings to the gods and parading the Spartan Xanthippus around as the city's savior. Xanthippus, though, was not fooled by this display of affection. Wary of the jealousy many of the Carthaginian nobles nurtured against this foreign upstart, he soon sailed back for Sparta. Diodorus Siculus states that on his way home, Xanthippus stopped by Lilibaeum to encourage the garrison to hold out against a Roman siege, and that he even personally led a sortie which defeated the Romans and relieved the city. Despite this, 
The jealous Carthaginian nobles gave him a leaky ship to continue his journey, and he sunk somewhere in the Adriatic Sea. Some historians think this story an implausible fiction, especially considering that there is a Xanthippus in later years who served as a governor for the Ptolemies in Egypt. Regardless of his fate, after appearing out of nowhere and single-handedly saving Carthage from the brink of ruin, the Spartan adventurer disappeared from history as he sailed east. There are similar conflicting reports regarding the fate of the Roman consul Regulus. Later sources claim that he was sent back to Rome to negotiate an exchange of prisoners, but he adamantly advised the Senate to reject any such proposals, keeping his oath to return to Carthage upon the completion of his mission. He was tortured to death by the angry Carthaginians. It is also possible that he died in captivity of natural causes. The Battle of Tunis reinvigorated the Carthaginian war effort while simultaneously discouraging the Romans. With their usual grit, the Romans immediately began preparing a relief fleet to save the survivors of the battle who held out in the town of Aspis, besieged by the triumphant Carthaginians. Carthage thought no more of peace treaties, but instead fired up her dockyards to produce new warships to take to the sea and to pour more troops into Sicily. The First Punic War would continue. Next time, we will see whether Carthage could make the most of this newfound opportunity, or whether the Roman war machine would once again prove itself unstoppable, even in defeat. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to The Layman's Historian, and follow me on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest updates on the show. Also, if you get a chance, make sure to post a review on iTunes. It really helps the show. Until next time, take care and read more history. <laughs>